It is. It is Tuesday, September 14th. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined, as always, by my dear friend, but horse friend. That's <laughs> horse with an A-O-O-A-R-S-E, not horse, O-R-S-E. Anyway, Dan Nathan, uh, for the macro setup, brought to you, as always, by our presenting sponsors this week, IGUS, the fastest-growing foreign exchange dealer in North America. And, oh, by the way, Open Exchange. They manage virtual meetings that matter for the top financial institutions around the world. We're also going to be joined by Daniela Sabine Hawthorne, analyst at Daily FX. But before we do that, Dan, how are you? I said you're a horse. Are you okay, Dan? I'm doing okay. I'm going to make it here. You're going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting, but I'll bring the I'll good do the stuff. heavy lifting. I'll, bring I'll the do the heavy stuff, lifting. Guy. Yeah. Well, we have our top three that we want to look at. Let's take a look at these things, Dan. <clears throat> you know, it's funny. When I used to work on a desk on Wall Street, this was, this was one of the things we heard all the time. The market's never going to go down again. I want you to speak to that because you put out a tweet. Shiny objects losing luster. Reminds me of an REM song. I think it was 1991, Shiny Happy People. We'll talk about that. And this is really important. Lockdowns and supply chain warnings all around the world, Dan Nathan. But first, the market's never going to go down again. Let's face it, Dan. Why would it? I mean, the market's open. Why? It's higher because it's open. Speak to me. Yeah. So I put this tweet out yesterday because I was looking at this S&P 500 chart and I was just kind of like looking at those peak to trough declines and how they've been diminishing guy. You know, a year ago we had like a 9% one and then we had in March about a five and a half percent one. And then in May we had about a 4% one. And then in July it was three and a half percent. And then in August it was two and a half percent. And this little drawdown that we're in right now is a little less than 2%. And the market keeps marching higher. The S&P 500 during that uh, time period has gone from 3250 to where it is right now at about 44, you know, 50 or 60 or something like that. And so to me, that just speaks to a kind of dangerous situation. And I just remark about a time where a guy who was not a market person, he was an analyst. It was February of 2000. And we just had a little bit of a correction. And he had this great trade because a stock that he owned just kind of bounced back. And he stood up on the desk and he said, the market will never go down again. And we all like turned and looked at each other and like, oh, Oh, my goodness. Strap it in. Strap it in is right. And I would have put some there would have been another word I would have put in between <laughs> yeah. uh, some of those words that you use. But we, I digress a bit. And look, this chart scares me a great deal. And we're going to look at the S&P 500 chart here. But, you know, the chart you just spoke to, Dan, speaks of basically complacency. Now you look at this S&P 500 chart and we've been in this very defined up channel. And quite frankly, it's been ex- it's been elegant. It's been exquisite. It's been everything you want to see if you've been bullish. But quite frankly, it's sort of haunting as well. And I mention that because, you know, we're in this very defined trend, this channel. But that 200-day moving average now right around 4,100 or thereabouts. Again, that increases by about five handles or so each day. That is absolutely in the crosshairs. And you have a bit of a reversal going on today. We'll see if that plays out. Uh, We have a VIX that's either side of 19 and a half. A lot of interesting things. Um, But this channel speaks to me um, in terms of, again, the complacency, but in terms of the risk to the downside. Yeah. And we also have weakening breath and you'll see some of the data. Just Google it right now. I think the amount of stocks above their 200 day moving average is, um, is declining. It's at levels, you know, that are not commensurate with an S and P 500 that's up 20%. But we know that the concentration about five uh, names that make up almost 25% of the weight 
of the index. We're going to talk a little bit about that um, in our next section here. That's really what is holding this thing up here. And, you know, like some of those names, even Apple that we're going to speak to underperforms the NASDAQ, underperforms the S&P 500, but it just made a new high and it's dragging up the major indices with it. Well, we obviously have this. Everybody loves the Apple. I get it. And there's their Apple event today. And everybody can't get a bated breath waiting for what yeah. they're going to announce, which is not, in my opinion, I talked about it last night on Fast Money. I think these things, you know, the diminishing marginal returns in terms of the stock action on the back of these events. But that's neither here nor there. What is here is the fact that you saw last week how quickly Apple can go lower as well. And you've mentioned over the years since probably middle of 2017, we've seen three or four 25 to 35% uh, peak to trough declines in the stock. And I'm not suggesting we're on the precipice of one, but what I will tell you is that 135 level or thereabouts, the 200-day moving average, which we bounced off of in the spring, again, appears to be in the crosshairs, being that right up against that 50-day moving average here around 148 or so. And I know this is the macro setup, but sometimes you got to get micro because Apple is such a huge component of everything we look at. Yeah, so you talk about that move off of the early June lows, and I think it really does correspond with rates coming in. We're going to talk about rates um, in a little bit here. I think that you know some view Apple as just too cheap, given kind of the monopoly that they have and the potential for fundamental drivers, whether it be a 5G upgrade cycle. You know what I think on that. There is no 5G. You tell me that your latest 5G phone is doing anything more for you than your last 4G phone. It's just not happening here. We've seen this for 20 25 years, just all the excitement about the drivers for mobile. And I just don't believe that. I will say this about Apple, though. You know, Guy, we drew that horizontal line there from the breakout level um, back in July. The stock had really been consolidating and had that move higher. And then on that epic um, ruling by a judge about what the take rate can or cannot be in the app store, the services component of this company is really important, right? Higher margins there. Um, we know that iPhones aren't growing tremendously. I'll just say this, is that this stock has never been more expensive relative to expected growth next year of you know mid-single digits and earnings and sales. So to me, not particularly interesting, especially if these products today are iterative. And to your point about that 200-day moving average, I mean, you break that uptrend that it is contending from the, the May lows or so, and the disappointing, let's say you have a disappointment with these devices, and then the market were to take a dip lower, this thing's below 140. Well, I mean, so you mentioned services. I mean, services revenue is the story. Services growth yeah. is the story. And now I think services revenue is about 21% or so of overall revenue. And that's why Apple is now getting a premium multiple. It's interesting, and I've mentioned this before, but for our new viewers, I'll mention it again. When mm -hmm. Apple was a growth stock, and it was at one point, it was trading with a 13 multiple. So it was trading sort of at a value stock valuation. And now that it's a value stock, effectively, I mean, I think the growth days, in my opinion, are over. It's trading like, a, you know, it is trading like a growth stock. So it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but we'll see. But I will tell you that 134, 135 level is in the crosshairs and right up against that upper end of the channel, Dan. So I think, again, this is the macro setup, but Apple's such a huge component of it, yeah. which is why we're taking a look at it. We've got to look at the next chart, which is obviously now the NDX. Very similar. I get it. They're going to be similar just in terms of the magnitude that Apple has in this NDX. But again, right up against the upper end of that trend line of that channel. And it appears as though we'd want to test the lower end. And that probably comes in 
I don't know, Dan, 14, 14-2, 14-3 or thereabouts. You probably have closer number than I do. Yeah, and it's interesting to note also that because of the concentration of those top five names in the NASDAQ 100, that is an, uh, an index of 100 stocks where five stocks make up 45% of the weight. If you go back and you look at March and in May, you know the last times that um, we had a bounce off of that uptrend from the March 2020 lows, um, it was major names leading the way to the downside here. And that's why I find this as a great trading vehicle. The um, end I trade the QQQs. I trade options um, in both of them, defining your risk, playing for a move back towards um, those channel levels to me is really interesting. And I think the potential for a retest of the 200-day moving average at some point between now and uh, you know the end of October seems pretty likely to me. And that's what I'm playing for right now. Yeah. you know, And number three on our list was the China lockdown concerns, supply chain concerns, all those well, different hold on, things. And- hold on. Hold on. Guy, we got to go back because there's one thing here, the shiny object. Oh, we didn't talk well, no, about I know. I know about the shiny objects. I was going to I, say, know, but I we was got- going to dovetail, but go ahead, please. No, we got to go to this ARC chart, right? This is ARC Investment. This is Kathy Wood. And she was basically one of the massive kind of, um, you know, if you were into innovative tech over the last few years, you've been following her and her ETF had these massive inflows. And I saw a headline in Bloomberg today that she kind of has fallen out of the top 10 within her group. But look at the performance of the ARC. It really has gone sideways for the better part of the last six months. And why is that? Some of the biggest components, right? Tesla is underperforming. It's only up 5% of the year. And some of the other large components within the ARC are actually all down. Like it's the Zooms and it's the Rokus and it's the Teladocs. Some of the innovative names are acting very poorly. Why is that? Well, maybe valuation, but that chart sets up really interesting. Look at that from the March 2020 lows. It's sitting right on that uptrend. It's below its 200-day moving average, got rejected at that downtrend from the highs. And to me, from a sentiment standpoint, it's really important that one of the biggest, I guess, stars of this tech innovative bubble that we've seen over the last couple of years uh, is her ETF falling out of favor right now. Some of the stocks in her portfolio certainly are. Yeah. And you remember Michael Burry about, I don't know, a couple months ago now, time goes very quickly, but he made a pretty big bet against this, obviously. And I think embedded in that is his sort of view on Tesla, which is neither here nor there. But you know, he seemed to be somewhat prescient given how this, this has traded over the last month. And we're right on that down, that uptrend line, um, you know, 118-ish, you start to break down. And I absolutely believe we're going to test the levels we saw earlier this year, which is either side of 100. And I did jump because I just wanted to mention, you know, shiny, happy people you mentioned. That's great. That's the shiny, happy objects. But yeah. in terms of supply chain concerns, they were speaking to the charts we looked at, obviously the Apple chart, the NDX, the S&P 500, but then the 10-year plays into this as well. And obviously we got a CPI number out today. Everybody's sort of uh, jumping up and everybody's doing sort of, I guess, back handsprings. The Fed's got it right. And I got to tell you, the move in 10-year yields suggests maybe they do. The TLT is back above 151 and 10-year yields below 130. But I think people are missing the bigger picture here. With that said, yields look like they want to test lower again, Dan Nathan. 
Yeah, that chart, pretty interesting, right? So it's just below that uptrend that's been in place since that move from 113 um, in the 10-year yield and then below that kind of downtrend line and below its 200-day moving average. And I just think that, you know, if we were to see rates go and retest those prior lows, I mean, the last thing that the stock market needs right now, or I think the one thing, and you guys, you and I talked about this last week on the macro setup, would be a growth scare at a time where we're starting to think about, okay, prices, let's just say CPI wasn't as hot. It's still up 5% or 5.3% year over year. We saw some different data out of the PPI last week that was really hot. But confusion and uncertainty and the, the thought of stagflation is not something equity investors are going to take too kindly to, especially at all-time highs with markets up 20% in the year. No question about it. Next chart we have to look at is the dollar because that drives everything. And if you look at this, it's been basically trading sideways. We've had Chris Vecchio on a number of times. We go back and forth. We're going to have Danielle on in a second. But dollar here sideways action is confusing to me because what, you know one of two things should happen. When rates were going higher, I would have thought the dollar was going to break through that 94 level. It didn't happen. Now rates going lower. Figure the dollar's going to break through that 90 level. But here we are, seemingly 92 and a half or so for the last four or five months. I can't really make heads or tails of it. You know why? Because I think the dollar is trying to figure it out as well. I think it's struggling with conviction. Where should the dollar be in this environment? I think we're going to find out rather shortly, Dan Nathan. Yeah, so the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index, 50% or so is the euro. Danielle is going to speak to that a little bit. And I think the consolidation here in the Dixie um, you know, is an interesting one. When people thought rates were going to kind of head back towards the prior highs from this year near 1.78, the idea that the dollar um, might start rallying too made some sense. I go back in the post-financial crisis when we started contemplating um, ending QE or at least tapering QE and then coming off the zero interest rate policy. What did the dollar do, it ripped. The Dixie went from like 80 to 100. What happened then? We also saw commodities like crude oil get absolutely slayed over the next year and a half or so. I think crude oil guy lost, what, 65% of its value as the dollar just moved higher, as rates moved higher. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, I think, got, um, what, close to 3% or maybe um, a little higher or so. And that's really what we have to think about. I mean, I just don't know how we see a scenario where if rates were to go higher, the dollar doesn't follow and what the knock-on effects might be. But again, this thing has been consolidating in this range between 89 and you know maybe close to like 93.80 or something like that. Will we see a breakout or a retest of those prior lows? Maybe Danielle can help us figure that out. I'm sure she will. I know it's we it, this is I I mentioned this because for context, it's important. You know, we usually tape these around you know, 11 o'clock in the morning or so. And I mentioned this because Bitcoin's our next chart. And when we finished last week, we noticed that just as we were finishing, Bitcoin had literally what I would deem to be a bit of a flash crash, went from 50 down to 41 and a half, 42-ish. And now we've been basically trading sideways around 45,000, 46,000. Just thoughts on that real quick, Dan, before we look at our next chart. Yeah. So we have Bitcoin and Ethereum here. And like to your point, like when we were taping this, I mean, they each dropped about 20 to 25% in a straight line. Now, a lot of people who actively trade crypto will tell you that's not so uncommon there, especially after a big period um, like you had of performance in the names. There's a lot of traders out there searching for stops um, and, and just 
they got elected. But here's the thing from a technical standpoint, um, it broke the uptrend from the July lows. We went from like just below 29,000 to your point. We were making a multi-month high on Tuesday morning last week, I think near 53,000 in Bitcoin um, and went straight to 43,000. So to me, keep an eye on that low from last Tuesday, a break below that um, might be an indication that we see lower lows. We're below the 50-day moving average. We're getting some support from the 200-day here. That one to me is really interesting. On the flip side of that, Ethereum, um, which, you know, listen, this one did outperform off of the lows in a massive, massive way. I find this story a lot more compelling. Um, I own on a relative basis a lot more Ethereum and much more bullish about the prospects of the protocols that are being built on top of this smart contract blockchain. But look at how far that is away from its 200-day moving average. Now, yeah, it did have that kind of move out of that um, consolidation range. But again, below that uptrend from the July lows here, it's holding its 50-day. Let's see if it can continue to do that. Holding 3,000 would be a good thing. So if you saw the sort of consolidation that we had earlier in the summer or for basically most of August, that might be a bear, uh, bullish setup for a move back to those prior highs. Talk in my book. I like a lot of things going on there. They have um, an upcoming change of their monetary policy from proof of work to proof of stake. And I think a lot of crypto folks are really excited about that. I am too. I'm not a crypto folk, but I find it interesting. I'm geeked up about that as well. I'm also geeked up to bring in our guest, Daniela Sabine Horthon, analyst at Daily FX. She's been with us before. She does an amazing job. Daniela, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? I'm well, thanks. Obviously, Dan, as I mentioned, is a bit hoarse, as they say. So this is going to be the two of us, if you don't mind. You heard us talk about Bitcoin. You brought along a chart. Speak to us. What do you see here that maybe Dan and I are failing to see? I mean, I'm pretty much with you guys. It's a challenging time for Bitcoin. I remember before this flash crash that you were mentioning last Tuesday when you were recording, I actually put out some commentary saying that Bitcoin was going to have a really tough time breaking that $5,000 gap between 50 and 55. And I think I mentioned something like, for me, the area to look out for, for buyers, you know, for them setting up their new target would be 52,700. And I'm pretty sure that's around the level where we suddenly saw this crash. So it just kind of plays into the fact that Bitcoin is struggling. It has been struggling for a while to consolidate above 50,000. And for me, this stagnation around the $45,000 mark that we've seen these last few sessions just kind of speaks to that. There's a lot of indecision. If you look at yesterday's candlestick, it's pretty much, you've got a bit of a, of a wider tail on each side and then a shortening body. Just there's a lot of indecision. People don't really know where it's going. I mean, we've got calls out, constantly calls about where Bitcoin's going in the next year or so by the end of the year. I mean, we had that tweet out from Kathy Wood saying it's going to go up to 500,000. I think it's by year end. I'm not even I'm not even convinced that it's going to get to 55,000 by then. So it's a, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, her comments are you know obviously makes great headlines. But I have two questions I want to ask you. The first one: Where can people find your commentary? You mentioned it. Um, let people know where they can find it. Yep. So we obviously the daily analysis on, on daily effects. And then a lot of the times we get um, quoted on external magazines. So they'll just ask us some commentary on Bitcoin. Um, and this is where I just, they'll just say, hey, what are you seeing on Bitcoin? And this is precisely that I think it was on the Monday before the flash crash. And, you know, just give an update on what you think on Bitcoin. I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I did a report on it that same day, just saying pretty much the same thing, you know, for me, the 50, 55, the $5,000 gap between 50 and 55, that's where I'm seeing a lot of struggle. 
And yeah, I mean, that's how it yeah. was. And the next question I have for you, this is just sort of a theory, the- not theoretical. I'm just curious as to your thoughts. I mean, we're talking about an asset class that I think maxed out around $2.3 trillion-ish in terms of crypto when Bitcoin was trading 64000 It's probably about a trillion and a half dollar market cap now-ish. Uh, don't at me, please, if I'm off by a little bit. But my point is, is it surprising to you that you see the kinds of, I mean, pretty incredible moves in a short period of time in an asset class this big? I mean, it was a 20% move in about a 10-minute period of time last Tuesday. Yeah, but it's not the biggest move, right? I mean, we've no, seen this No, exactly. Before. So, I mean, if you were to say it's a 10, 10%, 15% move in an hour in any other asset, you'd be shocked. I mean, you know, when everything was going on with COVID at the beginning, you were saying those 5% moves off the indices and everyone was absolutely gobsmacked. We're used to seeing a 20% move in Bitcoin over the weekend. So is it really surprising? No, it draws a lot of attention, but I don't think anyone panics anymore because, you know, there's always going to be some support and it always comes in. I guess it's a question of when are we actually going to see that decisive move higher or that decisive move lower in the next few months or weeks, because we've seen Bitcoin move in these ranges for a long time now. It's been rising a lot. It's been falling a lot. Where is it going? And I think a lot of people try to predict this long-term value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because of their fundamental value, but no one actually knows where that's going yet and if that will actually consolidate to something. So it's just the case of just seeing these wild moves based off headlines, and, and that's what's going on at the moment. Well, it's interesting. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary of the macro setup. Uh, and I will tell you categorically that's the first time that gobsmacked has been used. So thank you for that. Crude oil next. Feels as though, you know, crude obviously had that big sell-off. Dan Nathan has posted that 13-year downtrend line, but it's gotten off the mat a little bit. And very quietly, crude is starting to break to the upside. Can you speak to what you're seeing? Yeah, I think, again, it comes into a lot of fundamentals here with crude oil. I mean, we know commodities are one of the most sensitive um, to current economic climate. And we've got these recurring themes, you know, what is COVID doing? What does the winter look like now that we've got vaccinations uh, in full flow in most of the developed countries? So I think it's a situation where we're heading into a period where consumption is usually bigger because of the colder season in the US and in most parts of the world. And then we also have supply concerns based on this hurricane season that we've seen, supply concerns in some of the Gulf of Mexico. So oil has just been kind of basking in those gains slowly under the radar. Um, it's a case now of, is it going to be able to stay above the $70 a barrel mark? Um, there was a lot of hope back in July, August that you know we were full on to this is demand coming, demand is going to peak now. Um, That didn't really work out because we saw all of these concerns again around COVID and the Delta variant. But I actually feel like now we're in a position where we could actually see oil pick up some of that momentum as well. It is looking a little bit overcrowded, I have to say, if you look at the technicals, um, the RSI and the stochastic are showing a bit of uh, overbought conditions. Um, But that should smooth out in the next few weeks if we see this bullish trend continue. You wanted to bring up the Nikkei, which we don't talk about that often, but I do think it's important. Can you speak to what you're seeing here? Because this feels it's either a major double top or we're about to break out to the upside in a meaningful way. Correct. Yeah, this is actually, I think, a 31-year high. Um, I mean, this is before my time, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the 1990s <laughs> <laughs> was a bit of an economic bubble environment. So it's kind of, it plays a lot of, you know, to investors' mind, what is the situation that we're seeing in the Nikkei? This is basically on the back of those um, hopes 
of the investors had that, you know, the prime minister stepping down will actually see a lot more stimulus go into the economy. Um, but we do have a double sword here, I guess, in terms of everything that's going on in China at the moment. We have a wider systemic risk. So is this going to be the end of the run for the Nikkei? Um, is it going to be a double top as you were seeing? And then we're going to see this, this pull off on the back of it, or are we actually going to see it push higher? I think it's a very interesting chart. This is a weekly chart, so you can actually see how big of a move we've seen over the last three weeks. Um, and as I said, it all kind of stemmed from this announcement from the Prime Minister that he was not going to run again. We had Dan and I was talking about the US dollar, and I think the cross we want to look at here is the euro pound, which is reversing gains. I think, I think you know a lot better than I, but UK CPI on the docket. Can you speak to this? Because it feels like complete fake out to the upside. This move lower has been pretty stark. Yeah, I think if, if someone were to ask me what's characterized, you know, the euro sterling chart for the last few months, I would say fake out. It just seems to be the thing. The euro has tried consistently to break out against the pound, has not managed. We did see the pound come under a little pressure um, last year. I don't know how much you know about this, but um, the prime minister and the members of parliament, they all voted to, to raise the, the tax here in the UK. Um, and that essentially means or means that possibly the Bank of England has to be a little bit less hawkish because we are seeing um, the government be a bit more um, hawkish with their fiscal stimulus. So on the back of these concerns that monetary policy was going to have to be less hawkish and expected towards the end of the year, we did see the pound come under the pressure. That has completely reversed. The pound is having its best life against the euro right now. Um, as you can see, the pair is actually trading below 0.8550. Um, I think the real target here for most traders and an area that a lot of people have been looking out for um, is that 0.85 area there oh. that hasn't really been broken in the last month or so. And that's an area that's very interesting. We were seeing that the pair stay in this quite neat descending channel until we saw those breakouts in July, the first false breakout. Now we have another one here, August going into September. So it's just a question is whether this CPI day tomorrow is actually going to give us more insight into what the Bank of England is going to do in the next meeting, and therefore is the pound going to have a stronger foot um, kind of push higher against the euro? Well, thank you for bringing your insights and your charts and the word gobsmacked, which I will be <laughs> sure to try to mention tonight on CNBC's Fast Money. So again, thank you, Daniela, Sabine, Barthon. Dan, the horse, Dan, you want to give me a couple words before we get out of here? Yeah, I love she was kind of trolling a guy with the 1990s totally. Nikkei totally. stuff. There. I got that. Um, yeah, I got so that. I, got I, that. I, th I think her people would say I, I said to bring it to you a little bit. What do they call it? I don't know. Maybe we can't say as a family program here. She was bringing it to you a little bit. Um, yeah, no, great stuff out of her. I think her call on, on Bitcoin is great. So follow her on Twitter. Follow her on Daily FX. We do. And we enjoy talking to her on the macro setup here. Um, you know, yeah, you've mentioned this on a couple of occasions. You know, we we bring up Bitcoin here because it is a pocket of speculation. And we know that in the markets that we talk about in the macro set setup, there's a lot of traders in a lot of different markets, and they're looking at a lot of different inputs. And that one to me right now is very speculative and very interesting um, as it relates to sentiment about risk taking. So that's why we talk about that. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, I mean, to me, just seem um, extended. It seems like investors are all on the same side of the boat. That's an expression you like to use, but the chorus of strategists across Wall Street calling for a correction is getting louder and louder. Does that make you a little bit nervous, Guy? Because if they're all calling for it, is it going to happen? Yeah, look, but I mean, we had, it's, yeah, I mean, yes, it does make me nervous 100%, but sometimes the, the, as you know, sometimes the crowd, 
the masses can be right. And maybe this is one of those times. By the way, you know, you've also had courses of people saying new all time highs by the end of the, of the end of the year. I'm sure you're going to have just a matter of time before you start to see some 5,000 price targets for the S&P 500, if they're not out there already. So, yes, it makes me nervous. Doesn't mean they can't be right there, Nathan. So I thank you for fighting through yes, um, this, this voice problem. It is very, to me, more like. So thank you for that, Dan, Nathan. And I want to thank our presenting sponsors, uh, IGUS, one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. I also want to thank Daniela Sabine Hawthorne, an analyst at Daily FX, for joining us. She will be back. Follow her and take a look at uh, the, 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 excuse me, take a look at some of the things she puts out on a day-to-day basis. I also want to thank Open Exchange, Dan, because they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top financial institutions around the world. Thank you, Dan Nathan, and thank you, Daniela. Thanks.